Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the second ever episode of Jarius the Unofficial Therapist. I'm your host, Jarius. Let me go ahead and give you all this verbal disclaimer. This episode of Jarius the Unofficial Therapist is not for those without an open mind. From the title, you already know that this topic is something that many of you, many of you will not be able to listen to and understand the severity of. This episode covers the very controversial topic of equal rights when pertaining to gender, racial inequality, and white privilege. Opinions stated in this episode are those of solely Jarius and not of Anchor, Spotify, or anyone else. Viewer discretion is advised. Jarius, the unofficial therapist, will be right back after these messages. If you haven't heard about Anchor, what are you doing? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. For one, it is free. That should be enough reason for you right there, but if you need more reasons, I'm going to go ahead and give you some. Their creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And lastly, it is what I use to make this wonderful podcast, Jarius, the unofficial therapist. So, what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, for today, we are going to be talking about equal rights when pertaining to gender, racial inequality, and white privilege. We're going to go ahead and start off with equal rights. Equal rights is defined as the concept that every person is to be treated equally by the law. It, uh, you would consider me an egalitarian. An egalitarian is a person who believes in the equality of all people in an egalitarian society gives everyone equal rights. This is a word that means something close to equality and has to do with fairness. When laws make it fairer, the law is getting more egalitarian. Uh, when polled, 80% of, uh, 80% of people mistakenly believe that men and women are already guaranteed equal rights in the U.S. Constitution. 94% of those polled said they would support an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that guarantees equal rights for both men and women. But what would that type of, of amendment look like? Well, listen to this clip and that will explain why we need an equal rights amendment. 80% of Americans believe men and women are guaranteed equal rights in the U.S. Constitution. You might be surprised to learn this isn't the case. To understand why, we need to look at the history of a nearly 100-year-old piece of legislation called the Equal Rights Amendment, or the ERA. The Equal Rights Amendment was written in 1921 by a leading group of women's rights advocates. They believed systemic discrimination based on gender would continue unless we adopted a constitutional amendment to explicitly give women the same rights as men in all areas of life, and not just at the voting booth. Some version of the ERA was introduced to Congress every year from 1923 to 1971, but it failed to pass every time. The big break took almost 50 years, as a new generation of activists wrote the momentum of the civil rights and women's movement of the 1960s. The Equal Rights Amendment was finally approved by both the House and the Senate in 1972. But there was one last hurdle. For an amendment to be added to the U.S. Constitution, it must be ratified by three-fourths of the states. That's 38 out of 50 states. Only 35 states ratified the amendment in the 1970s before an opposition campaign brought the progress to a halt. By the 1980s, most people assumed the amendment was dead. And that brings us to today. 
a new generation of activists has taken up the cause and riding the momentum of the Me Too and Time's Up movements, two more states have ratified the ERA, bringing it just one state shy of reaching the 38 state threshold. It's important to understand why we need the Equal Rights Amendment in the first place. While it's true that gender discrimination is illegal in major areas of life such as employment and housing, without a solid constitutional basis for it, laws and norms could change and leave women unprotected as a result. To quote Antonin Scalia, certainly the constitution does not require discrimination on the basis of sex. The only issue is whether it prohibits it. It doesn't. Many states have already included some version of the ERA in their state constitutions, and support for the amendment is overwhelmingly bipartisan, with over 90% of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents supporting it. Alright, so you may be asking yourself, what can I do to get the Equal Rights Amendment ratified in all 50 states? Well, what you can do is you can call, if you're in one of the states where the Equal Rights Amendment is, has not already been ratified, you can call your congressional, local, or state representatives and try to push them to get it uh, ratified. The states that are currently not ratified it are Alabama, Arkansas, Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Louisiana, Utah, Mississippi, and Missouri. Those are the current states who have not ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. All we need is one more state to ratify it, with Virginia being the newest state uh, who ratified it, if I'm not mistaken, on January 27, 2020. Uh, we only need one more state to ratify it, to uh, have it... Um, ratified on all 50 states if that makes sense to any of you all right let's talk about our next subject which is racial inequality this uh, uh this subject is kind of going to be um hooked in with the uh the next subject after this one which is white privilege they're kind of uh one and the same but i'm still going to transition from one to the other if that makes sense all right. Racial inequality, which is defined as typically being analyzed as imbalances in the distribution of power, economic resources, and opportunities. Racial inequalities have manifested in American society in ways ranging from racial disparities in health, I mean wealth, poverty rates, housing patterns, edu educational opportunities, unemployment rates, and incarceration rates. Current racial inequalities in the U.S. have their roots in over 300 years of cultural, economic, physical, legal, and political discrimination based on race. Roughly 61% of people say that our country needs to continue making changes for people of color to have equal rights with whites. 30% say that we have made the change needed to bring about equality across the board. I'm going to go ahead and play this clip for you all, and I'm going to come back and say some more of how I feel. The United States is often called the Great Melting Pot, but it's a country that struggled with race relations throughout its history, and still does today. A 2015 CNN and Kaiser Family Foundation poll found about half of Americans think racism is a big problem, one that doesn't seem to be getting better. Two-thirds said racial tensions in the United States had increased over the last decade. More than half of blacks said they had experienced some form of racial discrimination in their lifetimes, from being denied a job to fearing for their lives. About a third of whites and Hispanics reported similar experiences. Blacks and Hispanics were also 
far more likely than whites to say that they had been unfairly treated in the last month in a public place, such as a restaurant or in a store, because of their race. Segregation is still a reality as well, at work and at home. 60% of whites said their work colleagues were all or mostly white, and close to 70% of whites said either their social circle or their neighborhood was mostly white. When asked if certain factors, like discrimination, a lack of educational opportunities, and broken families played a major role in the social and economic problems facing their communities, the majority of blacks and Hispanics said yes. But even so, there is optimism. A majority of blacks and Hispanics aged 18 to 34 say it's easier for them to achieve the American dream than it was for their parents. Only 31% of young white adults said the same. The racial wealth gap is visible in terms of dollar for dollar wage and wealth comparisons. For example, middle class blacks earn 70 cents for every dollar earned by similar middle class whites. Race can be seen as the strongest predictor of one's wealth. I'm going to repeat that. Race itself can be seen as the strongest predictor of one's wealth. What's that mean? It's if I'm black, that can be seen as the strongest predictor of my myself, what, myself's wealth, my black self's wealth. Crevo and Kaufman found that the information supporting the fact that increases in income does not affect wealth as much for minorities as it does for white Americans. For example, if you give a white American, a Asian American, Hispanic American, and African American uh, $10,000, it would increase the white American's home equity by $17,770. It would increase the home equity for Asians for $9,500, Hispanics by $15,150, and African Americans by $15,900. There are large differences in poverty rates across racial groups. In 2009, the poverty rate across the nation was 9.9%. This data illustrates that Hispanics and Blacks experienced disproportionately high percentage of the percentages of poverty in comparison to non-Hispanics, whites, and Asians. In discussing poverty, it is important to distinguish between episodic poverty and chronic poverty, which I'm not going to give you all the definitions of. But we're going to go ahead and go on to our next topic, which is white privilege. This topic, white privilege, is something that is going to be hard for some of you to hear, and it's going to be hard for some of you to accept the, the, uh, the truth of it. Um, the data that I have is uh, organized into 12 categories, but I'm only going to give you six of the categories. The uh, six categories I'm giving you all are police, war on drugs and prison, criminal justice slash courts, education, employment, employment, and voting. And I'm going to tell you what people of color can expect, and then I'm going to give you my final thoughts. Uh, the um, I, Before I get started and in going in depth with what I want to say, I want to say that the term white privilege should not be thrown around. Um, it should not be thrown around easily. It should not come off the tongue. It should just not, it, should, it shouldn't be thrown around because it is a very um, important term. It is a very hurtful term for some to hear. And it's, you can't just say because a white person is doing very me is white privilege. It's not something like that. And I'm going to give you all an example of someone throwing around the term white privilege so easily. And that is a, a CNN analyst, Ereva Martin, when she was talking on the radio with radio host David Webb. I've chosen to cross different parts of the media world, done the work so that I'm qualified to be in each one. I never considered my color 
the issue. I considered my qualifications the issue. Well, David, you know, that that's a whole nother long conversation about white privilege and things that you have the privilege of doing that people of color don't have the privilege of. How do I have the privilege of white privilege? David, by virtue of being a white male, you have white privilege. This whole long conversation, I don't have time to get Uh, into it. Areva, I hate to break it to you, but you should have been better prepped. I'm black. Okay, then I stand... See, you went to white privilege. This is the falsehood in this. You went immediately with an assumption. Your people, obviously, or you didn't look. You're talking to a black man. They who started out in rock radio in Boston, who crossed the paths into hip-hop, rebuilding one of the greatest black stations in America, and went on to work for Fox News, where I'm told apparently blacks aren't supposed to work, but yet you come with this assumption and you go to white privilege. David, That's actually David, insulting. Correct. It is, and I apologize because my people gave me wrong information. They, they told well, me. The whole white privilege thing is insulting. David, can, I, can I apologize and correct the record? I want to apologize. I was given wrong information about you, and I apologize. But based on my but color, white- you were going to something that I was part of. And just to add to it, my family background is white, black, Indian, Arawak, Irish, Scottish. I mean, it's so diverse. I'm like the UN when it comes to this. And this is part of the problem with driving a narrative around a construct like white privilege. Privilege is one thing where applied wealth, economy, uh, various social factors, but not necessarily determined by color of skin. That was just to show you all not to throw around the term white privilege. Let's go ahead and get into uh, the actual topic, white privilege. And we're going to go ahead and go to subsection police. Young black boys and men ages 15 and 19 are 21 more times likely to be shot and killed by police than young white boys and men. Blacks and blacks are less than 13 percent of the U.S. population. And yet they are 31 percent of all fatal police shooting victims and 39 of those killed by police were killed by police even though they weren't attacking it's also worth noting and i'm just going to say this that the data is limited many many police departments across the country do not report it as it is not required um if anything since the data is entirely based upon the officers non-compulsory self-reporting the bias in these data this data must be assumed to favor the police Thus, if we could account for all officer-involved homicides in all police departments in the entire United States, and if it were possible to use an objective measure that did not depend on the officer's own assessment of an incident in which he was involved, it's entirely possible that the data might show an even greater race-based disparity. Despite this, police officers involved in unwarranted fatal shootings, incidents that result in the death of people who are unarmed, not resisting, etc., rarely face significant consequences. Few lose their job, let alone face criminal charges. While it is extremely rare for a grand jury not to indict in all other circumstances, the one context in which a grand jury is highly unlikely, suspiciously unlikely to indict is when the defendant is a police officer. People of color who do not deserve it are being stopped, arrested, charged, and imprisoned while police officers who do deserve it routinely don't even have charges brought against them, let alone are they convicted and sent to prison. The criminal justice system therefore precipitates, protects, and even encourages racism. Let's move on to war on drugs and prison. (sighs) 
similar disparities between the practice of racial profile and actual crime rates can be seen in the war on drugs. Blacks and less than thir- are less than 13% of the U.S. population, and they make up only 14% of regular drug users. But they are 37% of those arrested for drug offenses and 56% of those in state prison for drug offenses. Black kids are 10 times more likely to be arrested for drug crimes than white kids, even though white kids are more likely to be, to, um, to be drug abusers. Blacks aged 18 to 25 are less likely than whites to have used marijuana in the last 12 months. In Seattle in 2002, African Americans constituted 16% of observed drug dealers for the five most dangerous drugs, but 64% of drug dealing arrests for those drugs. In the late 1990s, black and white women had similar levels of drug use during pregnancy, but black women were 10 times as likely as as white women to be reported to child services for prenatal drug use. What the war on drugs has done is trapped millions of people, especially black men in poverty, and pushed them toward a life of crime, with black boys being arrested 10 times more frequently than white boys for a nonviolent crime that they commit less frequently than white boys. Black men are funneled into the criminal justice system from a young age, with felonies on their records, and it is incredibly difficult for black men to get work. As a result, they are trapped in low-paying jobs or worse, turning to crime. The war on drugs has not only failed, it has created few, it has created fuel in currently supports the very thing it purports to fight. Its only legacy is lifelong marginalization and disenfranchisement of millions of black and Latino men and the utter destruction of countless of countless communities of color. Its prohibition is it is prohibition all over again. And it has failed to reduce substance abuse, addiction, crime rates, or any other ill associated with drug use. In fact it has caused all of these things to increase for the exact same reasons that prohibition caused all of these things to increase. Meanwhile, time spent in juvenile detention centers and state and federal prisons exposes young boys and men of color to the harder criminal element. Prison acts as a sort of crime university where nonviolent offenders whose only crime was smoking a little weed, something a majority of Americans, especially white Americans, do at some point in their lives, are encouraged and taught to commit increasingly worse crimes. Let's go ahead and move on to criminal justice and courts. Uh, Once arrested, blacks are more likely to remain in prison awaiting trial than whites. In some places, they are 33% more likely to be detained while awaiting trial than whites. According to a University of Michigan study, black defendants face significantly more severe charges than whites, even after controlling for for criminal criminal behavior, which uh, includes arrest defense, multiple defendant case structure, and criminal history. Observe defendant characteristics. Uh, defense council type, district, county, economic characteristics, and crime rates. Unexplained racial disparities exist across the charge. Severity, uh, severity distribution, especially at the high end. The most striking disparities are found in the use of charges that carry non-zero statutory minimum sentences. Black men are twice as likely to be arraigned on charges that carry a mandatory minimum. A study in Georgia in the 1980s found out that more than 20% of black defendants convicted of murdering white victims received a death penalty. However, only 8% of whites who killed whites and 1% of blacks who killed other blacks received the death penalty. Let me go ahead and tell you all something. In 2004, the U.S. Bar Association, not exactly a liberal or democratic bunch, reviewed the public defender system and came to the following conclusion. And I quote, 
All too often, defendants plead guilty, even if they are innocent without really understanding their legal rights or what is occurring. The fundamental right to a lawyer that America assumes applies to everyone accused of criminal conduct effectively does not exist in practice for countless people across the U.S. End quote. Let's point something out. This is the American Bar Association admitting that the fundamental constitutional right to a fair trial does not exist for many people in the U.S. If that's not white privilege, then I don't know what is. Let's move on to education. Children of color in public schools are treated much the same way that teenagers and adults are being treated by the law. Children of color are more likely to be perceived as guilty, problem children, young criminals, and funneled into the justice system early. This is referred to as the school-to-prison pipeline. A study published in the Journal of Personality and School Psychology found that young black boys were viewed differently than their white peers. It's, it says, and I quote, children in, the mo in most societies are considered to be in a distinct group with characteristics such as innocence and need the need for protection. Our research found that black boys can be seen as responsible for their reactions at an age when white boys still benefit from the assumption that children are essentially innocent. And I quote, end quote. Criminal, just, criminal charges are brought against youth in schools for violations that never would be considered criminal if committed by an adult. An adult who has been suspended is more likely to... No, a child that who has been suspended is more likely to fall behind in school, be retained a grade, drop out of high school, commit a crime, and be incarcerated as an adult. The best demographic indicators of children who will be suspended are not the type or severity of the crime, but the color of their skin, their special education status, the school they go to, and whether they have been suspended before. Now let's talk about employment. When you factor in all I have said in this uh, entire podcast, in this episode, uh... The get the job, get a get education, get a job argument still has massive problems because even when people of color manage to beat the stack deck and graduate high school without a criminal record, people of color still face huge discrimination. A black college student has the same chances of getting a job as a white high school dropout. Let me say that again. A black college student, someone who has went through all of college, has the same chances of getting a job as someone who didn't even finish high school. Meanwhile, a white male with a criminal record is 5% more likely to get a job than an equally qualified person of color with a clean record. Blacks need to complete not one but two more levels of education just to have the same prob probability of getting a job as a white guy. Let's move on to voting, which is the last one before we go on to what people of color can expect and final thoughts. Uh, and that will be the end of the episode. Voting. Voter ID laws have been proving to completely to be completely unnecessary and ineffective. They, they purport to prevent a kind of voter fraud that simply does not exist. They are a new Jim Crow, a way for conservative white politicians to prevent blacks and Latinos from voting. An increasing number of states are passing these voter ID laws, along with restrictions on early voting, same-day registration, community voter registration drives, and more, all of which serve Absolutely zero purpose whatsoever except for the intended side effect of disenfranchising millions of blacks and Latinos. So here's the reality. Black people in America can expect to have a hard time finding a job and be paid less for it when they do get it. They can expect to have a harder time getting a loan and get a, pay a higher price when they do. They can expect to have a harder time finding an apartment or a house, which may make it more likely that they end up in a quote-unquote bad neighborhood, which in turn can increase the risk of their children becoming involved in gangs, reduce their access to investment, reduce the quality of their children's education, and disadvantage them in, in a myriad of other ways. They can expect expect to be viewed and treated as dangerous criminals when they enter a grocery store, hail a tax, or even move into a neighborhood. They can expect to have a hard time getting a 
accepted into college, struggle to make the same grades and receive the same treatment from professors and advisors once they're there, and have the hardest time graduating. They can expect to be regularly pulled over or stopped while walking down the street for no reason whatsoever, and when they do, they can reasonably fear that an officer with an attitude problem or a quota to feel might arrest them on bogus charges or maybe even plant evidence on them. They can expect police officers to operate under the assumption that they are guilty and that they can expect to be railroaded by the justice system, even to the point of being forced to take guilty pleas when they are innocent. If they were born in poverty, as a much larger percentage of them are than whites, they can reasonably expect to remain in poverty for their entire lives. They can have very little reason to believe the American dream applies to them. And that's when they're doing their best to do everything right. God forbid they should make a mistake, as many of us do, especially when we're young. If they do, they can expect to pay for it in ways that white people don't, often for the rest of their lives. They can expect to be treated as young criminals by their teachers, given harsher sentences, longer suspensions, quicker expulsions, etc., both of which remove them from school and expose them to the gang element in their neighborhood. They can expect to be arrested, charged, convicted, and imprisoned for offenses that a large percentage of whites consider part of being a teenager or a college student. They can expect stiffer charges, higher conviction rates, and larger sentences. And yes, black mothers and fathers can reasonably fear that any time their child walks out the door, he or she might get in trouble with the law, get arrested, have his entire future ruined, or even, yes, be shot and killed by a police officer for no valid reason. And when that happens, they can expect that justice will not be served. So what does all of that mean? It means you can't take the race out of it. No one is making this a race issue. It is already one. It's always been one. So here's the here's the important question I pose to you. This comes from Twitter. If you are desperately trying to justify violence against unarmed civilians in 2019-2020, who do you think would you would have been in 1964 or 1944? You want to disprove the claims of people talking about an unjust and racist system today, but how would you have listened during apartheid, Jim Crow, etc.? By 1964, of course, the author of that tweet meant the civil rights movement. By 1944, he meant the Holocaust. If we're not willing to recognize, let alone fight against the injustices of our generation, how can we see ourselves as the type of people who would have fought against the injustices of the past? So, who are you today? In the face of today's injustice, which of all of the above just barely even gives to begins to describe, are you being today? The kind of person that would have opposed slavery, the Holocaust, Jim Crow, and apartheid back then? Who would you have been? Thank you for watching this episode.